You're listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Tim, for those who haven't come across you online, introduce yourself. Tell our listeners what we're talking about today. My name is Tim Albrecht. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Your Financial Pharmacist, where our mission is to help pharmacy professionals achieve financial freedom. You and I, I think, are about to go down a discussion of For someone here in 2021, as we look at the return on investment of the pharmacy degree and and entering that profession of pharmacy, the advanced degree, the time investment, the financial investment, does it still make sense, right? And and what, what is different today, perhaps, than it was even when I graduated back in 2008? I've got a handful of kids and none of them are going into pharmacy yet that I know of. I'm happy about that, and here's why I'm happy, because I say don't go into pharmacy thinking you're going to do anything in this building, in this business, because I have mm. I have no idea what's going to happen. So at least I tell them that, and I say if you fall in love with the science, great, go do it, but don't do it because of this. But then I kind of stop there, and I'm thinking, what do I tell a junior college age kid about the future of pharmacy? You've got so many people in YFP that are successful beyond pharmacy. That's my question. Are they successful because of pharmacy or should they just skip the whole damn thing and jump into (laughs) some of the other things that you're teaching? It's a hard question. And and you mentioned your kids. I think about it with my four boys. You know, none of them have yet to ask me. My oldest is 10, have yet to ask me like, hey, dad, should I go into pharmacy? But I've been trying to think of what is the answer to that question. And and where I think of it from primarily is the lens of the debt load relative to the income. And what is the ROI of the degree? What's the math behind it? What's the math? And, you know, just to throw out a couple numbers here for a moment, 2021, here we are, the graduating class of 2021 had a median debt load of $170,000. Now, good news and bad news. Good news is that for the first time that I've been looking at this metric over the last 12 plus years, it went down. So 2020 went from 175 to 170. Bad news is it's $170,000, right? It's still a really big, big number. And if we look at that relative to 2010, just over 10 years ago, we've gone from $100,000 as the median debt load, which was a big number back then, still would be a big number today, to 170,000. So we've seen a $70,000 increase in the debt load of a pharmacy graduate over a decade. Now, why is that, you know, is that justified? Is it not? We could go down, you know, some some rabbit holes there and there's a myriad of reasons that are likely contributing to that. Some that are directly related to how student loans are issued, some that are related to the institution and kind of the culture around borrowing. But nonetheless, the next natural question is, okay, if debt loads are going up, our salaries going up at a pace that equals or exceeds the rise in debt load. And you and I both know the answer to that question is a resounding no, it's not, right? And again, we're generalizing here and I want folks to remember that, that, you know, I talk with some pharmacists that are in, you know, I'll throw out a couple career paths, whether it's in a pharmaceutical industry career paths, whether it's somebody who's in hospital health system, pharmacy administration management, you could argue that they have some significant upside long-term in salary. But as we look at the data as a whole for the profession, that comes out and as reported by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, it's been best flat. And if you account for inflation, it's probably negative, right? And so we've got this rise up that's happening in debt loads and we've got this flattening and in some cases decreasing. You look at some some individuals having hours cut and other things. You know, you could argue that the debt to income ratio, which is one of the things I'm looking closely at, the debt to income ratio, a good indicator overall of the financial health of our profession is certainly going up. The debt to income ratio is going up. And so, you know, is the ROI there? Maybe, I I think the answer is it depends. It depends on, you know, why are you going into this career path in the first place? I take myself back to being 18 years old, making a decision to go to a 06 PharmD program. I had no idea what the profession of pharmacy was about in 2002, but, you know, I love the sciences. I had guidance counselors say, hey, you should think about pharmacy. And I looked at it, saw a good, you know, outcome perhaps uh, in terms of salary and, and career options and so forth. But that was it. I, I didn't know anything about the different 
career options, the different things I could or could not do. And, you know, I think for some folks still today, you know, you may, you may identify with pharmacy students that have never worked in a pharmacy, stepped foot in a pharmacy, don't have a good understanding of why they're choosing pharmacy and others have done extensive homework and, you know, might be because of a situation of a family member where there's a illness or something that really ignited a passion and and wanting to understand more about this field. But what is the why behind entering first, I think is really important because if we just look at the numbers on, on, on the surface, if debt loads are going up, if incomes are relatively flat, if we look at what is perhaps on the horizon when it comes to things like automation and the role of the pharmacist and so forth, if you're not in it with some love to begin with, I think we've got some hurt and pain that might be coming down the road. And so I think we have to first ask ourselves, what's the purpose? What's the reason? Why have we chosen this profession? And then I think we could talk, Mike, on the outside after we graduate. We've got some work to do in terms of what could I be using this degree for? And, you know, one of the things I felt in school, and I would argue many graduates still feel today, is that the PharmD can be perhaps a pathway to community pharmacy or a pathway to complete a residency. And if you look at the workforce survey data that's out there, you put those two together, that's a big piece of the pie in terms of what pharmacists are doing and are entering upon graduation. But what I'm really interested in is what is the rest of the pie and all the slivers that are out there and how might the PharmD be a pathway to really open up some career opportunities that we haven't yet fully explored or that students and graduates haven't yet considered and I think this comes full circle to the financial piece because, Mike, if I got $200,000 of debt staring me in the face, am I willing to take some risk? Am I willing to take a lower paid position to pursue something that I might feel like is more aligned with my goals and my interests and my passions? Or might I have that feeling of golden handcuffs because I've got a lot of debt to pay off, right? So I think we've got some, some issues that are really confounding the answer to that question. If you could take a graduate five years out of college 10 years ago versus a graduate five years out of college now take away the remuneration if you can job satisfaction down up the same yeah again generalizing right but i think it's fair to say overall um it's down. And, and I think that, you know, we, we, we've got work that's happening on a national level, on a state level here in Ohio, we've got the state board of pharmacy that's looking into this issue in terms of, you know, satisfaction in the workplace and the ability of the pharmacist to do their job and provide patient care in a way that is both effective and safe. And it, it is that at risk because of, you know, the workload issues and the environment that they're in. And I think that attention around it is not a bad thing. And part of that attention around it may mean that we're feeling more of what has been there for a while. But I, I think overall, if I think about my class 2008 graduating, and if I think about you know where they were at in terms of their workplace satisfaction career a few years in versus a graduate today, I, I think overall, it's, it's, it's fair to say that that satisfaction is down and the stress is up. Now, I think, Mike, where we need to continue to evolve the conversation is so much of what I hear around the pharmacist satisfaction, their workplace, you know, what am I going to be doing for the rest of my career that we, we, we tend to look at that in a silo and you could take two pharmacists from the same graduating class five years out and you could get two very different outputs in terms of how they're using their degree, what types of roles they're, they're doing in their job and how they view uh, the future of the profession and the role that they're going to play in that. And it feels very much like we've got kind of a divergence of our profession. Um, you know, and again, I'm going to be dramatic here to make a point, but on one, on one end, it's we want to be as far away from the product as we possibly can to use cognitive skills, and we need to get compensated for that appropriately with the asterisks of we've got to have the compensation to make that a viable business. And then we've got, you know, the other, again, part of this dichotomous relationship being dramatic to make the point of we've got to, you know, hold on to the product, which is the revenue source that it is while we look at continuing to evolve these other things. And, you know, I think we start to see this divergence in how folks are using their license and perhaps how they're then connecting that to how optimistic 
they are or are not about their own roles as well as the viability of the profession going forward. And so, you know, what does that mean 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now? Um, I, I think it's complicated because of regulatory things that may, you know, slow down some of what feels inevitable. You know, if we just look at it from a business sense, you know, I, I look at just the other day for the first time, maybe I don't watch enough TV, but for the first time I saw a commercial for Amazon pharmacy, we've been talking about it, but actually to see the commercial and, and I start to think about from my own sense, you know, I'm a prime user. I've got a young family and, and if I can have access to medications at the doorstep and ideally pair that with telehealth or something else, I'm there, we're there. Right. And so, you know, I think that we're starting to see more and more that disruption and how might that automation play an important role. And one of the things that keeps me up at night, to be frank, is we got 45% of our workforce that's in a community pharmacy setting, right? And if we look at the connection to the product going away or the business case of that perhaps not being viable because of competition, uh, because of technology and, and, and so forth, what does that mean for 45% of our workforce? What does that mean for the retraining potentially or the redeployment of 45% of our workforce? Um, and how does the pharmacist role evolve to be able to accommodate that? And I think if I'm a you know, high school senior as I was back in 2001, these are the things I'm thinking about. And it goes back to me in part due to the, why am I entering this? And and how can I put myself in a position that I'm not financially tied at the end of this road? Because who knows what's going to happen in the six or eight years of my school, not only to the profession, but also my interests. And if I'm counseling that senior in high school, or that undergrad students, what can we do to get to this point of obtaining degree with as minimal financial stress as possible so we can leave as many doors open as possible to pursue whatever those areas of interest may be. The earlier comment I gave was to my children about you shouldn't go into pharmacy because of this building in this store. And if a high school or a college person came to me and said, I'm going into pharmacy, what do you think? I would tone this down a little bit because it's like, well, they already made up their mind, sort of. I don't want to dash their hopes. But if someone comes to me and says, what do you think about pharmacy? If it's not my children, the next thing I'm saying to them is I would only go into pharmacy, maybe any profession, I would only go into it if they have an idea, kind of a novel idea what they're going to do with it outside of the norm. Mm. Any professions like that, if you're going to be an engineer, you might not get there, but have an idea in mind yeah. of what you're going to invent, you know, or if you're a pharmacist, have an idea in mind of what handheld app you're going to make and bring it into this or that. But then it's like, Tim, given what you said about higher debt, lower pay, lower job satisfaction, and then I take somebody who I say, well, if you're going to go in there, have an idea that's going to make you fly beyond the norm, I'm thinking, I'm not sure who I'd recommend it for then. Because if the person has that kind of idea, it's like, do you want to spend six to eight years, unless you really need that degree, That's right. maybe you take it and do something else. And I think what you just said there is really important is, do you need the degree or not to be able to pursue that idea or area of interest or potential ideas. Now the, the, the hard part of that is like, do I know that at 18, 22 or 23, you know, and you don't know, you don't know. But I think that's such an important, you know, point of, of where is that degree critical or not? But Mike, what you said to me is, is, is really key because, you know, one of the things I'm so passionate about is great ideas are killed by financial stress, mm. period. Right. And I would even take that a step further that great ideas are not even allowed or welcomed in to even consider that opportunity to have the mindset to receive those ideas and think through them when financial stress is heightened. Right. Because yeah. we've all lived this firsthand. You know, if we're struggling financially and we could define that in, in, a, in a myriad of different ways, like, 
we're, we're not focused on what opportunity might I create? What risk might I take? Right. And what we need in our profession right now, in my, in my opinion, is we need some people to be taking some calculated risk. And we're seeing, you know, small scale examples of this. But if somebody is 26 with a great idea and $200,000 of debt, and they've got a $100,000 offer sitting in front of them, and option B is I'm going to take on some more debt to pursue this idea. And I look at the SBA, Small Business Administration Statistics, about success of business, like, and I look at my percent chances of succeeding, and maybe I don't have a whole lot of mentorship or other examples of PharmDs that have done this. Like, yeah. what am I going to do, right? What am I going to do? And I think for us as a profession to continue to evolve and disrupt as we try to find what is our place between an automated process and other professions, PAs, NPs, et cetera, that might be kind of locking down more of that ambulatory care space that is supplementing some of the provider shortages that are out there. Like it feels a little bit like we aren't exactly sure where to go in between. And and, and that's where we need some disruption innovation. And I'm confident that of the 330 plus thousand pharmacists out there, we've got some pretty awesome people with some pretty incredible ideas. And what would it be like? What would it be like if we actually could allow these ideas to come to be, to flourish, to have mechanisms that support some ideas and fund some of these ideas? Um, and maybe two out of 10 of them work, right? But we just I think for today's graduate, what you shared, Mike, or today's prospective pharmacy student, and I felt this going into it, it very much is a mindset of I'm going to fall into the path that exists right now. And I and I would argue that path today, for good reasons, is maybe a little bit less defined than it was when I graduated in 2008. Yeah. Because I, when I entered in 2002, I was very much thinking about, okay, that six-figure job with a community pharmacy. And, you know, with a little bit of guidance, mentorship and forethought, like the inevitable disruption that was coming to that, you could start to see that probably pretty, pretty early on, you know, maybe not as obvious as we do today, but I think it's very difficult for somebody entering into pharmacy to be open to and to be thinking about an alternative path than what has already been defined either for them, role modeled by faculty or alumni and then to add on to that, to be in a position financially uh, where they can take some of that calculated risk. And then the thing I would add on top of that too, Mike, is and one of the things that jacks me up so much about the work that you're doing in talking with other pharmacists, entrepreneurs, and business owners is we need more examples out there. And you know, not, not to say that anybody's going to hear what I've done with YFP or you know what so many other fascinating pharmacists, entrepreneurs, a few that come to mind, you know, Blair Thielmeyer and the work that she's done, Brittany Hoffman, Eubanks and the work that she's done with medical writing, uh, Landon Connors developed a very successful photography business. I mean, there's just some really, really cool examples. Not that they're going to hear any one of those. I'm going to do exactly that, but it gets us thinking a little bit more creatively and differently about how might the farm D be a starting point and a ticket to many different potential pathways and not necessarily the end line or the finish point, even with postgraduate training involved. And I think that's just such a different mind shift from where we're at today. I'm a big believer in forward momentum. Mm -hmm. You don't want someone sitting on their ass and saying they have this idea. It's like, well, be doing something. You're already moving. And so the inertia is going to perhaps send you forward. The problem with that debt that you're talking about is when you're a 26-year-old, it's one thing to say, all right, I'm going to live with five or six buddies, real low rent. I have this idea. If it doesn't work, I come back and eat my mac and cheese. I try again tomorrow. That's all good, but it's not so good when you have $150,000 in debt. And golden handcuffs, we're talking about golden handcuffs maybe when you're 40 and you don't want to do something, but these are like true, like you're down in the dungeon with real handcuffs on, you know, those are true handcuffs. So yeah, we have to question whether anybody who enters pharmacy school, it's like, oh, they're going to enter pharmacy school. All right, well, let's move them off the list of a future entrepreneur unless something really clicks for them. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, one of the things that gets me so excited, I mentioned that pie earlier, you got about 45% of the workforce in community pharmacy practice, you know, I'm using round numbers, about 25% or so in hospital health system practice. 
And then the rest of the pie to me is really fascinating, right? So I, I keep thinking about if 45%, again, I'm going to be dramatic to make the point here, 45% of our workforce gets upended, right? At some point in my lifetime, I'm confident that's going to happen. Now, I think there's a other side, optimistic side of that story that I'll come back to here in a moment. But if 45% of the workforce gets upended, like what else are we leaning into those smaller slivers of the pie that we can really accelerate other roles and redeploy what our folks that are trained, I think, to do some incredible work that can have a really positive impact on patients and on healthcare teams. And, you know, there's lots of great pilots, I think, that are going on. I think a lot of those have been on a state-by-state basis. I know the associations are doing a lot of work in here. But at the end of the day, like that, I think, is something we we need to think about. And it reminds me of, um, I was reading Andrew Yang's book uh, recently, and I'm drawing a blank of the name, not his most recent, but the one before that. And he talks about this concept when he talks about the percentage of uh, the workforce that are truck drivers. And he's envisioning a future state where there's autonomous truck drivers yeah. that, that's happening, right? And so what does that look like if you take away every one of those jobs that might be on the road today? Now, again, that's dramatic. It's going to take time. It's it's perhaps further than we originally thought. But I think those are the types of things we need to be having conversations about as uncomfortable as they are. Yeah. And, you know, perhaps we have think tanks or groups that get together that put these questions on the whiteboard and start beating them up and, and throwing them out there for people to react to and intentionally are a bit heated and emotional to get people uncomfortable and thinking. And one of the things I look back at my own journey, graduating in 2008, it was very, very comfortable. It was very comfortable. And you know, I didn't necessarily realize the impact of the debt load, comfortable options that were in front of me and salary that was true for my classmates comfortableness does not equal disruption typically, right? right. And so what, one of the silver linings, I think as we look at the other side of this coin with the debt load today, is as we look at salaries perhaps flattening or some positions being disrupted, like that naturally I think will encourage some ideas and generate folks that are asking themselves, well, what else is out there? And what, what, what else might I use the D for? But I keep coming back to this concept of the debt load and the golden handcuffs because that's going to be real if I've got to pay back $1,800 a month for 10 years. What, what do I do to be able to mitigate that risk so that I can take on some of these other, other opportunities that are there? Now, I, I mentioned I want to come back to this. You know, I said 45% of our workforce in a community pharmacy. The other thing that I think about often that gets me excited is if you zoom out, and I know this will sound very naive to folks that are in this every day, but if you zoom out for a moment and we think about the dispensing of medications getting disrupted, mm-hmm. we have a physical footprint in almost every community, sometimes more than one, right, that are across the street, all across the country. So that's a really interesting opportunity that you've got a healthcare provider that has a unique skill set with proven value that is embedded all across the country. Now, maybe we've got, I think the conversation today is a mismatch of what that individual is needed for and how they're being compensated and what else might that person be doing. But we have people deployed all across the country in these pharmacist roles that are able to be embedded in their communities. So how does this physical footprint of thousands and thousands and thousands of pharmacies and pharmacists, if that role does get upended, you know, as we look at Amazon Pharmacy and other examples, how might we think about that role within a community differently? And how does that embed with telehealth and other technologies as well? And I think these are the conversations that I don't know if it's because we're protective of the current role, if they're uncomfortable to have, but we're not, we're not having enough of them, in my opinion. You look at like Blockbuster and yep. they had chances to get more into the online Netflix ideas and maybe it was because they were hopeful that because they had a store in every community like pharmacies that instead of saying we do but we better act fast we've got it true but because we have it let's not switch the cart and the horse let's not assume because we're here with a building that we're still needed it's day to day. I think it's a great point, right? Let's not be family dollar. You know, every time I, I go by 
a family dollar. I don't know if those are across the country, but in our, our neck of the woods, you know, that, that are still there and you see some being converted to coffee shops and other things, it does feel like there's a hanging on to the physical footprint. Right. And so I, I agree. I mean, just cause the physical footprint is there does not mean their success. I think what I'm, I'm prodding a little bit is how might we leverage that physical footprint? And is there a business model to leverage that physical footprint? For sure. Um, and is there a business model that warrants a physical footprint? You know, if I'm, if I'm Amazon pharmacy, I'm finding, and they're probably a hundred steps ahead of where I'm thinking, I'm finding a telehealth provider or even a provider that has a physical footprint that I can partner with. So I can do what I'm good at, which is distribution and logistics. And I can partner someone who can help us standardize the actual provision of care in a convenient way all across the country. So, you know, might there be a day where a CVS, a Walgreens, whomever partners with an Amazon, um, that becomes the primary care clinic. I still think that's too outdated of a model. I go back to what I said earlier, like, you know, if I'm a father of, of four and, and my wife and I have a busy schedule, like if I have the option to hop on and see someone like you and I are talking right now mm-hmm. for 80% of conditions that perhaps can be done via telehealth, we can have a conversation, save t- some time. And two hours later, the medication shows up at the door or less, like we're it, right? Yeah. You know, I think, I think that people are going to be in for that convenience. So yeah, I'm, I'm by no means suggesting that the footprint equals guaranteed success, but you know, I think we need to be having some more of these conversations and asking some big questions like what would it, what might it mean if in 2030, instead of 45% of pharmacists in community pharmacy, it's 20% because a lot of disruption has happened and, and the rest of the 20% that remaining is inevitable that it's going to keep going down. Well, what does that mean for the 300 plus thousand pharmacists that are out there? Yeah. What does that mean for those that are graduating? What does that mean for those that are entering? Because Still to this day, you know, many students that are coming in, although this has changed, many parents of students that are coming in still have a very traditional view of pharmacy and how that license might be used. And so if it becomes more, quote, non-traditional, what does that mean from a marketing standpoint of our profession? What does that mean for getting prospective students that are excited uh, to go into and ultimately use that degree? All right, Tim, we talked a bit here. Now, the 18 year old you comes to you and says, Tim, what do I do right now? Are you entering pharmacy again? That's a great question, Mike. I I don't think I would have entered pharmacy at 18. Um, I may or may not have gotten there eventually. And I'm talking like 2021 now, not back then, but now. Not back then. Yeah. Yeah. The reason why is I say, you know, 18, like, my, my maturity, my self-awareness at 18 did not yet have a full appreciation or understanding of what that investment of time and money was going to be making. Right. And, you know, obviously my bias is coming out in the current work that I'm doing where I use a lot less of a clinical training, a lot more of, of some of the business yeah. you know, side, marketing, finance, et cetera. Um, I think I, I could have benefited greatly from an undergraduate business degree or you know, perhaps even think a little bit more progressive, like might I have pieced together some Coursera courses or some Google courses, got some real-time work experience, um, done an apprenticeship, you know, learned more from my father and our family business, mm. you know, but that's very non-linear. Right. Right. That's very non-linear. And I think as a parent advising their child or even a child who's entering into that, like what's comfortable is linear. Yeah. And, and I think is, I think about what I just described, like that's a very nonlinear path that I'm, I'm guessing my parents may not have promoted and I may not have felt very comfortable with along the way. So, you know, I, I've never regretted going into the profession because I, I, I can see a direct tie to everything I've done today through every part of my career, which goes all the way back to obtaining that PharmD which led to a residency and the relationships and the mentors I had, which opened up my eyes to different opportunities, which led me to academic experiences yeah. and new skill sets and mentors, which has led me ultimately to have, have the confidence in doing what I'm doing now and growing that. So I, I very much can see all the dots connecting. And I, and I think what I wish for students coming in right now, as I think about wishing this for myself would be some more exposure and opportunities and discussions around potential opportunities and pathways with the PharmD. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that's still just 
you know, breaks my heart when I hear students kind of talking about a dichotomous decision of community pharmacy or residency. Yeah. And again, I think that's changing, but there are so many other things out there that people could be doing. All right. Now I'm Tim at 23. I've got my undergrad, this and that. Now you think I'm going to ask the question, Tim, would you go into pharmacy at 23? But I'm not going to ask it that way. I'm going to say, Tim, you can either go into pharmacy at 23 or here's $170,000 I'm going to give to you. You get to have in your pocket. Now what's that choice? In my mind, I'd have a hard time saying, I'm going to go into pharmacy instead of taking that 170000 and put it into my pocket after I have an undergrad. I can't see who would really make that choice. Now, am I wrong? It's an interesting question. I've thought about that. Um, and I think objectively, if, if you look at it at the surface level, absolutely. Give me the hundred and seventy, and I'm going to see what I can do. Worst case scenario is I burn through it. Best case scenario is you, know, you turn that into something that can multiply and grow into a business and, and perhaps take some calculated risk. Now, the reason why I say at a surface level is I dig a little bit deeper and just think about my current experience and all the lessons I've learned that have allowed sure. me to now be doing the work that I'm doing. And I'm probably going to say the same thing in 10 years and another 10 years, another 10 years Right, is like the experience, some of the maturity, some of the self-awareness, some of the readiness for risk. Like here I am at, at 37, like I don't think I was ready before that. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think I was ready to take a leap of faith in myself and in the business before the age of 37. And that was a 13 year progress in training to get my mindset right to get there. And I, and I feel like I'm still just scratching the surface, I think on the mindset and, and what is possible going forward. So I think objectively, yeah, $170,000, let's take it and let's see what we can do. But I think of just the experience and the maturity and the self-awareness and the mentorship and, you know, being in difficult conversations and work scenarios. And, and all of that was training in a very protected, safe environment that allowed me to get repetitions that has allowed me to do what I'm doing today. And I think that cannot be understated uh, for how, how important that experience is. But the question is a valid one, certainly. You have to look at some of the people that you mentioned earlier, right, Blair and so on and your stuff those initials behind your name make you part of that club. And I would think you have to say your business now is more profitable than if you come in saying that you're Tim, a friend of pharmacists, but not one yourself. hundred percent, Mike. And, and I think about the early stages of YFP and I still think to this day, I mean, we're, we're creating content and services that are based on, what we're hearing from our community and what I have experienced and our, 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 the rest of our team has experienced ourselves. And so, you know, I, I think that's certainly right. Now, do I use my PharmD in the clinical sense for what I'm doing today, leading YFP in the business? No, I don't, right? But I think the, the connectedness to the profession, the yeah. living it firsthand, the understanding of going right. through a residency and some of the career transitions and what- For sure. 100%, 100%. And, and I think, you know, and this is a great, Example, what we're building, what we're doing at YFP, I always tell people, personal finance is personal finance. It's been around forever. Mm. And there's one of the, you look at the top books in Barnes and Noble on Amazon, many of them are personal finance. And sometimes mm -hmm. you wonder like how many new books can come out about some of the same <laughs> topics, right? But, but here's the thing about personal finance, because I experienced this for myself until that information reaches you in a way that you can connect with and then exactly. inspires and motivates you, it doesn't matter yeah. how many books are out there. Yeah, exactly. And that really is our mission and what we're doing is to one, be that source of inspiration and connectedness to the topic and by sharing stories and bringing other pharmacists in and really being a facilitator. You know, so much of what we're trying to build is build community of pharmacists that are committed to this this mission of achieving financial freedom. And we are yeah. the connector and the facilitator of doing that. And sharing another story, especially as my story gets old, right, is going to be more and more valuable of another pharmacist saying, yeah, I've heard about budgeting 15 times and student loans 100 times and invested, but I heard it this way and I can see myself in that person's shoes. And that is a source of inspiration for me to really be the catalyst to, you know, want to do this better for my own journey. And so, yeah, I think it matters big time. Um, it, it really does. And, you know, as I look at many other people that are in the financial services industry that are serving pharmacists, like 
Have a lot of them been successful? Yes. Uh, are they doing it as well as we are? I'd like to say no, because I think we can connect and relate with people on a different level. Asking that question makes me think like, instead of me being a pharmacist to relate to people, maybe I'm better off finding other people that like to eat butter pecan ice cream at night. You know, Which just I do like love a, butter pecan ice cream, yeah. <laughs> See, yeah. we could have bonded like that, Tim, without having all the cost of a degree. That's right. You mentioned about seeing stuff for the first time. It's like, I've got some things like maybe I'm reading some psychological book or something like that. And I'm like, how come no one told me about this? And then you find like a book on this topic that was like copyright 1975. And you're like, oh, I guess it was out there. I just wasn't ready to hear the story. Right. It wasn't relating. So what you say about new stories and hearing it over and stuff, it's true. Yeah. And I'm reading a book. Actually, I've read it twice. I'm on my third time right now is recommended by uh, a mentor of mine called The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. He's got a second one too on one of the chapters. Turning Pro. That's right. Yes. Yep. Turning Pro. I heard the one you mentioned is better. They're both, I mean, just game changers of, of mindset. And I, I, I would say as I look back at the last year, and this is in part due to some great mentors and coaches, like I never realized how much head trash I have going on and, and that I didn't, wasn't able to articulate or fully understand. And as I peel back the layers yep. of that and better understand some of the own resistance, you know, and some of the potential uh, barriers to success and perceived success, the limitations we put on ourselves for a hundred different reasons that are unique to our, our own individuals. Yeah. Um, that has been the most transformative experience I think I've ever gone through in my life has been the last year of trying to really dig deeper, dig deeper, dig deeper, dig deeper. And naturally you just start asking yourself more and more and more questions yeah. and, you, and you start to, I think, get to a root of like, who, who am I Yeah. and what do I want to be doing and what's the why behind all of that? And, you know, I think as you start to uncover those layers and I think for, for pharmacists that are struggling in the work that they're doing or looking for, you know, what might be more fulfilling, meaningful, purposeful work, asking some of those questions and, and really evaluating some of those barriers that might be in the way um, is just incredibly important. And I think to your comment about readiness, like, as I mentioned, 37, you know, kind of working full-time in the business, like at 26, 28, 30, 32, 34, like I wasn't there yet. Right. I wasn't there yet. And I think I'll probably look back at 47 and say, Oh my gosh, I can't believe I took that risk because I'm, I'm if I would have known myself now versus then, maybe I wouldn't have, right? So right. um it is a journey and you know, those are things that you're just not gonna get in a farm D or an MD or any other, you know, training program that are going to be just part of that continuous learning and lifelong development. Tim, so somebody comes to you and let's say you're part of this new game show. And they take all guys like you with four sons, okay? <laughs> and they say, Tim, you have to pick one of your sons. They have to get a farm D degree. Mm. But the one with the most money at 40 wins. You're playing against a bunch of other dads in this kind of uh what was that one with jim carrey oh yeah yeah. i forget the one where they were watching this whole time the truman show the truman show so you're playing this truman show game or something and you've got to take one of your kids let's take away all the stuff of saying what their desires are doesn't matter for this game this game is all about getting one of your children they have to get a pharmacy degree but the one with the most money by 40 wins. There might be a lot of other careers to go into, but what if they had to go through pharmacy school? How would you play that out? Yeah. The first thought that comes to mind, Mike, is um, one of my boys is um, gifted in a non-linear creative thinking and mindset. Um, and my first thought was to pair him up with the pharmacy degree. Uh, and the re the reason why I had that thought is back to your comment earlier of like, you know, you said something along the lines, like if, if somebody can go into pharmacy without an acceptance that they're going to be walking into what is the status quo today, I think that's a really interesting combination. I think that's a, something we need to keep thinking about a little bit, a little bit further. And 
I think that would be him. You know, he, he wouldn't last a day in, in a, in a insert name of a community pharmacy filling 300 square. He just wouldn't, yeah. it, it's not for him. And so assuming he doesn't get kind of beat down from the, the rigor and the, the, the linear nature of the training, yeah. like I would be really excited to see what is the output of that degree and how does he use that gift as a creative, more abstract, nonlinear thinker to be applying that to the profession that we love and coming up with potential roles and disruptions and ideas and services. So this son, you love him, but you love him in a Truman Show kind of way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you really want to see him at the richest person at 40. I know there's more to life than this. Just for the sake of this question, you need him to win at 40, have the most money, but he had to spend seven years in pharmacy school. How would you direct all of that? Don't worry about being a good dad and all that stuff (laughs) and about his desires and all that stuff. I'm just saying you need to win this game. What would that look like? When does he go to pharmacy school? When does he spend that time? And even if it's not worth it, he has to do it. So what does he do? What businesses does he open? What does he invest in? We're not going to talk about whether he's married with children and all that kind of stuff, but what road does he take? What risk does he take to be the winner with the most money at 40? Can I seed him with money or no? Um, no, no. He's got to end with the average debt of 170, let's say. Okay, he has to get to that debt load. Or he has to delay school or expand school. So maybe it takes him 20 years to get his degree, but he's working in the middle of it and investing instead of paying for pharmacy school. He's got 20 years to spread it out, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. How do you get somebody to win this deranged game? The first thought that comes to mind is we need to avoid as many traditional pharmacy experiences as we possibly can to insert more non-traditional experiences. Now, if you can appreciate the traditional model, it's going to insert some ideas of what you can do from a disruption standpoint, right? So if I spend three months in a large community pharmacy filling 500 scripts a day, I'm probably, and I have some ideas for disruption, I'm probably going to use that experience to appreciate what could be done, sure. right? So we have to get some level of that. I don't want that to be mistaken. But here's why I'm saying this. One of the things I often encourage pharmacy students to do is, Stop the working for the summer in insert big box name pharmacies. Stop, right? And and the reason why is if if we're talking about the disruption that we think is going to be happening and the long-term 40 plus year career that you have and what we see in terms of the satisfaction and the value of those folks in those roles, why are we investing that time with the hopes of landing that job and being in that long-term environment, right? If, if, if I'm a student pharmacist or advising my son, it is what are some of the healthcare startups and some of the uh, companies here in Columbus? Let's start reaching out and how, how can I work for free for the summer? What, what value can I provide as a pharmacy student? And by the way, if you start to get some traction there, maybe we pause the degree. Maybe that degree does take 10 or 15 or 20. And maybe we don't finish it. Maybe we do. I don't know. Who, who knows where it's going to go? But what I do know is we can't follow if we're playing the Truman Show game to get there by the age of 40 and he's in his mid-20s. We can't follow a traditional six to eight year pathway of accruing a bunch of debt, delaying a bunch of savings without having something that's going to have a potential for a significant ROI in a relatively short period of time. I'm avoiding traditional. When would this child start school? At what age? The pressing nature of the 40, obviously, we, we've got some time limit on it, but I probably would encourage some type of, a, if you want to call it a gap year or something, to start getting some experiences and exposure um, prior to starting school. So maybe at 18, they go around to businesses, maybe startups, and they say, I'm really thinking about going to pharmacy school. I'm probably going to go next year, but I'm really interested. I'm that kind of a person. Can I work for you? Can I work for you? Can I uh, spend two hours with you? Can I uh, pick your brain? Who else can you introduce me to? What's been the successes, the challenges? What what, what would you wish you would have known at 18 years old? Uh, what advice would you have for me going into this pathway? And, and maybe that affirms the interest 
you know, in that degree, maybe, maybe it doesn't, but if nothing else, if they're going into that pathway, they're going into it with a new mindset into that pathway and they're building connections through that. So in this game, they have to do it anyways. They have to get the degree, but that might make it easier because they're at least more interested in it. Absolutely. Yep. I think so. Um, I think there'd be the passion. Inter- I think more than anything, even with the passion and interest, which I'm hoping is, is there, but even with that, my, my thought being that if, if the goal of the game, you know, you quantified it in terms of dollars, which I would argue, um, successful disruption is probably what I'm more interested in, which is going to equate to dollars, um, or has the likelihood of equating to dollars, then that's where I was going down the path with non, non-traditional. It, it has to be exposure and experience in non-traditional pathways very early on. Exposure. Exposure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So if they get to graduating at 24, 25, 26, and they've got 14 years left before the game ends, and they're very much down a traditional pathway, best case scenario at the end of the game is, let's call it an average of 100. Maybe it's you know going up a little bit yeah. times 13 or 14 years. Like That's not going to win the game. No, right? I mean, that's not going to win the game. It's not going to win the game. And I want to be clear, I know you're asking it in the context of the Truman Show game, like, you know, I think if I'm advising any current student or prospective student or my son, like, you know, there's, there's, I'm a big believer, there's, there's a baseline financially that has, has to be there, you know, to give you breathing room and, and comfort to be able to take risks and do some of the things that you enjoy. Uh, but beyond that, the actual, the literature is pretty convincing that you start to get to somewhat of an inverse relationship you know, with money in terms of earnings, at least. What do you mean by that? So when you look at kind of some of the research around like happiness and money, um, obviously it depends on where you live, cost of living, how many kids you have, all those things. But generally speaking, they're, they're, you get to a threshold, if you think about it as, a, as somewhat of a bell curve, where there's enough that you have that covers your basic necessities, some small, you know, minor luxury sure. things that you enjoy. And, but after that, you really start to see a fall off as mm-hmm. income continues to go up. With the exceptions of experiences and giving, you know, kind of the two things that mm-hmm. really focus on some of the happiness associated with money. So, you know, if we're if we're in this example and game kind of after the money, I guess where I was going with that is that's a factor. But what I'm after in part with some of the disruption and having an impact and having significance and a positive change, like I'm somewhat assuming that that's going to lead to, you know, the the financial piece as well. But at the end of the day, that that's that's much more important to me, and I think is probably more important to many many pharmacy students as well. The satisfaction, yeah, the satisfaction, the significance, the autonomy. What what is the money going to afford me to do? All of those things. Of course, of course. But in this game, I mean, because I wouldn't have ten kids if <laughs> <laughs> true story. I wouldn't have ten kids if I didn't think there was more to life than amassing wealth. Yeah, it's just for the point of this game. So. What I would say is a happy 30-year-old who has 10 more years of earning might earn more even than a non-happy one, depending on where the happiness comes from. Mm-hmm. If it comes from a bunch of kids, maybe not, but if it's <laughs> just from job satisfaction. So we know that someone who goes the traditional route is not going to win this game which none of us want to be in, but it is the game that I set forth. It's non-traditional. So they pick up some non-traditional stuff in the summer, but maybe not so much in the school year. Where are they picking that up then, Tim, to be non-traditional enough to really have a chance of winning this game? Yeah, I think, you know, and, and I'm operating based on my experiences in academia, I'm operating on, on kind of a fixed traditional curriculum that's out there, right? So one of the things that came to mind when you asked this question was, I think there's some research I'd be doing to, you know, look at what curriculums might afford me different opportunities that are entrepreneurial experiences, flexibility, schedule, things like that. And unfortunately, when we look at a a professional degree program, you might see some little variances here or there, although they could be significant. But, you know, it's, it's, it's largely a fixed curriculum where all 100 or whatever students are going through that pathway at the same time. So if we could change or disrupt some of that and have, you know, a program that lasted longer and afforded more time, like I would certainly encourage if we could make up an example where instead of a four-year PharmD, maybe it's a six-year PharmD 
but you've got more time and availability to go get some of these experiences. Um, but within the system and the cards that were dealt, you know, can I align my experiential rotations, you know, mm. with some of these opportunities? Can I not only just be on the summers, but can I be looking at opportunities throughout the academic year? What, what city am I living in an area that might have some of this, you know, healthcare startup type of culture and climate? Um, am I at a university, you know, I think of a university that like, like Iowa that appears to have a reputation for some entrepreneurship and business right. activities. So th those are the things that I think you're trying, in my opinion, to put some of the cards in your favor, at least as, as many as you can. If you went to a school and said, Hey, <laughs> my dad's got me in this game. I want to take nine years to do this. Would any of them allow that? Yeah. My, my experience is, you know, I don't know if I would say not allowed, but it's, it's, Definitely not the norm by any means. I mean, there's situations where there's extended pathways because of leave of absence, you know, medical situations, family situation, hardships, et cetera. But here we're talking about like a planned mm -hmm. pathway that is not, not because of a, of a hardship, but because of pursuit of opportunities and other things. Um, I was at one institution where they actually were looking at, I think what they were referring to as like a decelerated pathway. Um, but again, it was more out of the context of the load of the curriculum and allowing students a longer time period that might be struggling academically to complete it and complete it successfully versus this 18 or so credit yeah. hours a semester. It was not under the discussion of here. We're talking about kind of this pursuit of a, a career, not because of academic challenges or other, yeah. other hardships, but because of an intentional decision from a career standpoint. I'm not aware yeah. of, of that that exists. I know there are some, I think there might be some rules around accreditation to ACP about timeline to degree and completion or that the institution may have. But I think it's fair to say it'd be very difficult from a system that is largely cohort based um, and that has very little flexibility within a curriculum outside of some elective hours and experiences. They might pick a college that is maybe known for a little bit more entrepreneurial ideas or a little bit outside the box thinking they get done when they're like 26 years old. They've had summers to work for different startups and learn things like that. All right. Now they've got like 14 years left and they've got maybe debt if they weren't able to earn it from one of these ideas. Now they got 14 years left him. So now what do they do? Yeah, and I would go back to a little bit. I'm thinking of institution like I was at Ohio State, where you know pharmacy students are largely occupied in the pharmacy building. You've got one of the best business schools in the country, right? That you can walk across campus to, right? So, you know, taking some of those quote risks and forming some of those relationships. Um, how might I be thinking about my pharmacy mm -hmm. degree in the context of business? You know, are there certain electives or coursework right. I can take in the business school? You know, all those things. So what am I doing after I graduate? I mean, I think that depends on kind of where the pathway is. I, I think if the goal, the way I'm thinking about the game you've presented is I either win or I bust. And that's not real life. Let's say there's a hundred participants. That's not real life because we can't bust. It's not real a fair game because then you're not looking at risk and things like that. But let's say you really want to win. Yeah, I mean that's how I'm thinking of of the game. If I'm if I'm playing a game like a board game, right? Where where the sure yeah, it's either I'm, I don't want to end in you know fourth place no. out of ten. I'm either gonna get first or I'm gonna get last trying. Right, right. So you know my, my my first thought comes down to there has to be some type of business entity or structure in which you have ownership and equity yeah. that has an exponential growth value that becomes an asset that could be sold. Yeah. Or it could be bought by venture capital, you know, whatever would be the case. Either a business or a brand or something, right? Exactly. Um, a business, yeah. I, I, so, so something where you have equity that has potential either significant linear or exponential growth. So might that be a medical diagnostics company? Mm. Might that be uh, a service-based company that provides kind of a national glue to this challenge around provider mm -hmm you know, status and clinical contracts and someone forms kind of a national network. I, I think there there would have to be something that not only had a good earning of income potential, but had good equity potential. And I'm thinking about it from the games coming to an end at 39 and a half. And there's a sale value that has significant return on investment.
it almost has to be like not too mature of a market. Well, it could be mature, but if it's a mature one, it has to be so mature that it can be disrupted or else it has to be new. But you can't really just grow something till 40, probably on a linear growth. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And and I think something that has um, obviously has market value, um, but but this, you know, re- really highlights the difference between W2 compensation and ownership mm-hmm. in something. Right. So y- you might be, you know, if you're if you're an owner of a company, hopefully you're getting to a point where you're paying yourself a wage, but then you also have profit in that entity yeah. and you're growing an asset, you know, along the way that could be could be sold. And I think in a, in, in, in a perfect world, unless there's significant funding that's you know going to win the game very, very early on, would be holding on to as much equity as you possibly can for as long as you can in the game because you're taking a bet in the, in the hopefully somewhat exponential growth in the value of that company that is eventually going to be sold. So, you know, instead of giving up 50% or 75% of that off the bat, if you're able to, with the right expertise yeah. and the right funding and all that, with which are big asterisks, hold on to that equity as long as you can. Obviously, the goal being is that's going to far outpace any income you're going to earn during that time period. It makes me think as we're talking here and then thinking about doing this and growing something and disrupting and all that kind of stuff. And let's say somebody who wins this game with whatever amount that is, I don't see pharmacy school as being really a hindrance at all to this game. In other words, when you throw in things, Tim, like being able to find maybe a summer job because you're in pharmacy school and maybe hitting the ground running with the owners because you're in pharmacy versus some young kid who just has an idea of things. And then you talk about being able to go to the business school across the street from the Ohio State University Pharmacy School, and then being able to do this and that and rubbing elbows with different medical professionals and all that kind of stuff. Incubators and startups. Incubators and stuff. And it kind of makes me think that pharmacy might have a place still. Yeah. And, you know, my academic side of me is is killing me to even say this out loud. I'm a type A perfectionist, but I went through pharmacy school with a self-imposed expectation of I had to get the best grades I could possibly get, you know, at, at all expense of time. And I, and I think mm. about the, the 90% rule, right? So the, the effort to put in to get to 90%, Versus the effort to get from ninety to one hundred percent often often can be about the same, right? And I'm not sure. not suggesting people do you know work that is is not representative of who they are as an individual. But I live this firsthand. I see a lot of pharmacists live this firsthand. Like, guess what? My three seven eight GPA at Ohio Northern. Nobody cares, right? Nobody, nobody cares. You know, right? And you know, I think about the time and effort, you know, I could have probably got a very solid three Oh two nine three one, whatever. Yeah. You know, done, done fine. And, um, had a lot more time to invest, but that goes back to what we talked about. My, like I wasn't at the maturity and self-awareness and reflective point to be able to accept that trade-off. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I, at 20, 21 years old, my identity and mindset was still very much framed around, the achievement in that academic sense. And yes, and I would argue it is even harder to unravel now with some of that achievement based mindset. That's interesting. But I think there's capacity margin. Now what I'm hopeful about, and, and, you know, I have some awesome colleagues that I've worked with is like, who's going to be the academic institution? Who's going to be the academic providers, the career, you know, providers, the faculty, et cetera, that, might be able to crack this code in terms of like developing some of these flexible models, supporting students that maybe are good, good academically, but they've made, they've made a choice for that intentionally because they want to spend some time doing this or that. Uh, and it might mean that they don't have a three, eight or a three, six GPA. Um, but they're thinking about the end game in a different way. Um, and, and I think the barrier to that is we were all trained in that very traditional environment. Right. But, the industry is is going to be disrupted. The farm D is going to be disrupted. It's it's going to happen, yeah. and I'm talking about from the academic training side of it. Um, now, again, just like with the practice, we've got some regulatory pieces with ACP and, and NAPLEX and licensure and other things that I think will slow that down. 
But what we're seeing on a national conversation and what we're talking about here, the return on investment of the degree and continuous increases in debt loads relative to marginal of any increases in salary and output, that is ripe for disruption. And and I think the most likely outcome short of someone developing something new altogether is I think we're going to have a, my idea is I think we're going to have a big player or a few players that are nationally recognized institutions that have some of the political clout and weight with some of the accrediting bodies that are going to do some more incremental moderate disruptions within the Mm -hmm. realm of the existing system that eventually will take enough momentum and and lead to enough momentum that will slowly evolve some of the accrediting and, and others that are there. And and that's one of the things I, I hope for, you know, institutions that, that I've worked with, like Ohio State or other top 10 pharmacy schools, like who, who's going to be the disruptor, right? Who's going right. to be the disruptor that not only has the political clout to disrupt, but also can recruit students in a disruptive model because they are the university of whatever and have been known to be very successful and who can still meet NAPLEX, you know, rates and all those other things, but are looking at the PharmD and the pathway and how we're training students in a little bit different way. Well, first of all, I am the proud torch carrier of the non-A students. So <laughs> that's my distinction. So I already have that one. So you stay away from that, Tim. Here's what I think has to happen. Just listening to you here, and I bitch about this all the time. I hate the first two years of college. You're paying a boatload for stuff that you should have learned in high school. I ain't no world traveler, but I hear that Europe doesn't repeat those two years. So in other words, you don't go into pharmacy school and you don't take the history and English and all that stuff over again. That's done in high school. So I'd shave two years of school off that way. Then I would have regular pharmacy school be two to three years. All right. So you shaved off the first two years of liberal arts regular pharmacy school, maybe two or three years. So instead of having a community pharmacist who's seven or eight years, it's down to two or three years. Then you take that other two or three years, maybe you squeeze in some MBA stuff, but maybe it's two or three years of entrepreneurial studies or going to different businesses and things like that. Mm -hmm. You don't need someone in a community pharmacy with seven or eight years of medical knowledge. Couple years, get them out for two or three more years of entrepreneurial stuff, five-year package. That's what I would like. Yeah. And I think the question is, can that be done or a variation of that be done within the existing PharmD accreditation? And I think incremental changes to that can happen. And I would say maybe not PharmD. I would say pharmacist the pharmacist yeah d it's like hey have your fun in the hospitals have your fun when one of these people in mike's accelerated entrepreneurial program (laughs) makes it you can go work for him as a farm d knowing all the clinical stuff but i agree i don't know if it can be done in a farm d program yeah i don't know this is another example like let's get a think tank and start beating this up and, and try to do the best that we can take out the emotional, you know, reactions yeah, to things like a lot of emotion. You know, it's a good question. Could, could a form D be done in a way that achieves similar educational outcomes or some set of modified educational outcomes in a lesser time period? And might, might there be, cause I think the initial reaction to that is, you know, they're, they're a business and there's revenue and there's number of years and all that. But, might there be a situation where there's less revenue, but more profit? Might it be more efficient or, you know, might, might there be an overhaul of, of, of the student loan situation and other things? Um, I, I think it's an interesting conversation, you know, for sure. And does it have to be a six to eight year pathway? Um, which is something I often think about because, you know, we talk about when it comes to long-term savings and investing time value of money money in the market over a long period of time is what matters. And so if we've got six to eight years of training, plus several other years where we can't think about investing because we've got $200,000 of debt, like right now we've got an investing problem, you know, on our hands as well. So right. yeah, it's a great question. Tim, what kind of people listening to this should be contacting YFP? Who are you looking for and how should they contact you? And what are they going to see when they're on your site? Yeah, I think some people might, might be listening to this and be like, so how does YFP connect? <laughs> and I think- one of the reasons I love having conversations around the profession and the career and, and hopefully do it in a way that folks can 
understand, you know, we're intentionally not getting into all the weeds, but really trying to more than anything, I think, stimulate some ideas and thinking and discussion is that there is a strong connection between the financial plan and the career plan. And so we work, you know, with a lot of pharmacists, about 250 households that we work with right now do one-on-one intensive fee-only comprehensive financial planning. Hmm. Um, And obviously, you know, for many of those conversations, it often comes up, how does their career plan, the financial plan intersect? Hey, we're looking at making a move, thinking about working part-time, thinking about pursuing a, a, a business idea. And obviously the financial plan has to support that or being able to do that with confidence. So we work with pharmacists, you know, at all different points in their career, uh, investing, retirement, insurance, um, home buying, second home, uh, real estate investing, student loan repayment, other debt repayment, mm-hmm. uh, really cu- customizing that to one's individual situation. So if they go to yourfinancialpharmacist.com, they can learn more about one-on-one planning. We do a discovery call for those that are interested in learning more about that service. And then we've got Lots of resources available on the YFP podcast, on the blog, and through other resources on the site. Tim, I love talking to you. So fun. We'll have to schedule it again for next year. (laughs) Awesome. Thanks, Mike. All right, Tim. Take care. You've been listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Please subscribe for all future episodes.